welcome to Things Are Getting Strange, an X-Files Rewatch podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Kim. And, uh, well, oh, no, we do have news this week, sort of. Very tangential news. Oh, yeah. Well, it's just, it's David Coveney's birthday this week. Or last week. Last week. And Gillian Anderson's as well. Yeah, they're it? like two days apart. Kind of cool coincidence, that really. Both Leos, would that make them? I don't know. <laughs> I don't I wonder know how well on. two Leos are supposed to go together for our fanfic writers. Oh, no, no, oh, yeah, but that, that's, that's the actors, that's not the couple. Ah, uh, true. Because uh, I don't think... I think some fans of the series like to dream that David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson will get together as well. Any evidence of anything else? Because I don't think we have anything at the moment. No, if you've got any gossip for me or anything you want me to promote that is actually X-Files related, do hook me up on the social medias. Uh, we'll have the details at the end of this episode, but we have a Facebook, a Twitter, a Mastodon, and a Tumblr, so you can get me anywhere you fancy. And an email. And our email, yeah. Yes, yeah, so no Senate adherence on UFOs, no mysterious subjects on beaches, for now. No more gossip about the potential X-Files revival. No, not yet. I mean, we expect that to go quite a bit. So we'll move along swiftly to the old stuff. So first up this week, we have uh, Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man. Directed by James Wong and written by Glenn Morgan. An odd distinction between the two of them for a change. First broadcast on the 17th of November 1996. Guest stars. Chris Owens plays the young cigarette smoking man. He will reprise this role one more time in the series, and he'll also show up again in another episode, and I was actually very surprised at this one. Oh, yeah. He is the Great Mutato from the postmodern Prometheus. I can actually see it now I'm thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was also in The Incredible Hulk. He was in Saw 6 and Saw 3D with an absolutely bizarre credit. Okay, I've seen all the Saws, but I can't place him. He's additional voices. So I don't know what on earth he's doing on these films, but he's additional voices. Oh, good grief. That would be why I don't remember him. Yeah. Uh, he was in Red, which was the um, Bruce Willis, Helen Mirren, elderly assassin thing the with John, with John Malkovich. Yeah. yeah. He was in Tech War. <laughs> if you're in Tech War, I'm sorry, we've got to laugh at you. But we also have uh, Morgan Weiser played Lee Harvey Oswald, who's only notable... Other credit was, can you guess? Space Above and Beyond. Exactly. And there's also Donnelly Rhodes, who played General Francis, who was in Cheers, but has been in the X-Files before, because he was Jim Parker in Shapes back in Season 1. Okay. And he's going to be in Millennium. The Smoking Man, armed with a sniper rifle and surveillance equipment, spies on a meeting between Fox Mulder, Dana Scully, and the lone gunman. Brohickey claims to have discovered information about the Smoking Man's mysterious past, stating that his father was an executed communist spy and his mother died of lung cancer, which caused him to be raised in various orphanages in the Midwest. In 1962, the Smoking Man is an army captain stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. He is friends with Bill Mulder, who shows him a photo of his infant son Fox and his wife. The Smoking Man is summoned to attend a meeting with the General and several strange men in suits. The general calls the Smoking Man's father an extraordinary man in spite of the threat he posed to national security and indicates he expects the Smoking Man to inherit his father's courage to act decisively and to take drastic measures in defence of his principles. It is revealed the Smoking Man was already involved in the Bay of Pigs invasion and the assassinations of Patrice Lumumba and Rafael Trujillo. Essentially, for these reasons, they select him to assassinate the President John F. Kennedy. In November 1963, posing as a Mr. Hunt, Smoking Man shoots Kennedy and frames Lee Harvey Oswald. Afterwards, he smokes his first cigarette, given to him by Oswald. Five years later, the Smoking Man begins writing an adventure novel using the pen name Raoul Bloodworth. While writing, he hears Martin Luther King give a speech arguing that communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real, and the Smoking Man subsequently meets with a group of men, including J. Edgar Hoover. These men proposed various plots similar to a previous failed attempt to undermine King's marriage and manipulating him into committing suicide. Smoking Man believes a more intense solution is required. Unlike most of the men present, Smoking Man admires King but believes his opposition to the Vietnam War might convince African Americans to object to fighting. He convinces the group to have King assassinated and volunteers to personally carry out the assassination. In 1991, Smoking Man meets with subordinates discussing the orchestration of the Anita Hill controversy and the Rodney King trial, as well as Buffalo Bill's loss at the Super Bowl. 
He further reveals his drunkenness of a Soviet goaltender to ensure the outcome of the Miracle on Ice hockey match. He refuses to take a call from Saddam Hussein and is disappointed when he learns of Mikhail Gorbachev's resignation. He is invited to a family dinner by one of his subordinates for Christmas, but the Turkoman declines and states he is scheduled to visit family. On his way out of the meeting, he distributes his Christmas presents to each of the subordinates, and they all receive the same gift, a striped tie. He leaves the FBI building past Mulder's office. Later at home, Smoking Man begins writing again and receives a phone call from Deep Throat, who meets him near the site of a UFO wreck. A survivor of the UFO crash is on life support and critically injured. Deep Throat and Smoking Man reminisce about multiple times they've changed the course of history from the shadows without any public recognition. Deep Throat persuades Smoking Man that the alien must be killed, according to the UNSC resolution previously alluded to in EBE, and stipulates that any signatory nation that comes into possession of an EBE will kill it. Smoking Man flips a coin to decide who will fill the obligation, Deep Throat loses the coin toss and reluctantly shoots the alien. Later in March 1992, the Smoking Man attends the meeting where Scully is assigned to the X-Files and eavesdrops on her first meeting with Mulder. Four years later, in 1996, he receives a letter telling him that his long-written novel will be serialised in a magazine. The Smoking Man types up his resignation, quits smoking, and excitedly seeks out a copy of the magazine at the newsstand. However, he finds the ending has been changed. Bitter, the Smoking Man sits on a park bench and talks to an unhomed man and delivers a monologue comparing life to a box of chocolates. He tears up his resignation letter and resumes his smoking habit, leaving the magazine at the bench. Back in present day, Fro Hickey admits to Morden Scully that the account he has relayed is purportedly based on a fictional story he read in a magazine to which he subscribes. Fro Hickey decides to investigate and verify the story. As he leaves, Smoking Man aims his rifle at him. Although it is a clear shot, he decides not to kill Fro Hickey, quoting aloud his own line from his unpublished novel, I can kill you whenever I please, but not today. I know on Twitter this is become a controversial no, a controversial-ish episode. We can't talk about that yet. No, I believe from some people... It's another Marmite episode, as people either love or hate this one. Uh, some of the reasons why people have given me that they hate this episode is because later things I think that the Cancerman's going to do kind of tarnish their opinion of this episode in hindsight, so I don't want to judge it on that basis. Yeah. We'll see about that when we get to any relevant reputation tarnishes for the Cancerman. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of bizarre that we're going to get to the point of yeah, we're going to touch the reputation, despite the death, the murder, the cover up, the cheating, the <laughs> manipulation, all the sordid stuff he gets up to every week anyway. It's interesting that this was a controversial episode amongst the cast and crew as well, because a lot of people feared that you'd kind of tarnish the Cancerman in some way because you're kind of removing some level of the enigma that he is, because up to this point we don't know anything about him. Yes, well this is like, this is the argument you get in the DC universe with the Joker. You don't give the Joker's backstory. Or if you do, you make it, there's a, a plausible deniability to say it wasn't that. I was actually going to cite the killing joke for this episode, because <laughs> the killing joke has a similar structure where you give a rather comprehensive and compelling backstory for the Joker, and at the end infer that you know, parts of it might be true, parts of it might not, nothing might be true, where the Joker has a comment saying, if I had a backstory, I'd want it to be multiple choice. And it's also impossible to ignore, and it from the comments it sounds like a lot of people did, in the Cigarette Smoking Man's novel, the Raoul Bloodworth Take a Chance novel, is basically autobiographical from the little bits we see of it and we hear about commented, because it's all about cover-ups, assassinations, and alien invasions and things. And basically, it seems that Katzman doesn't have much of an imagination, so he's just using his own life as a template for this. But at the same time, you have the enigma, and it's skipping to the end of the episode, when he reads the story and looks disappointed and says they've changed the ending. Yeah. We, as the viewer, have no idea how much of this has been changed and how much was true to begin with, which puts the entire thing into doubt. Yes. We also don't know, and this is the whole... It's quite clever with the levels of plausible deniability that are packed into this, is... We don't know that what Frohiki we suspect that what Frohiki is reading out is the serialized fiction that we actually saw published. As he mentions a magazine. As he mentions a magazine. He's very careful not to name the magazine, but there's enough to draw allude that together. But we don't but since we cut into flashbacks whenever they get into the details, we don't know if what Frohiki is telling Morden Scully is actually 
not what we're seeing on screen because we're getting cancer man's cancer man is specifically framed as the narrator for these events and then also you get into further details of the fallibility of memory and how you, your memories will slowly shift over time no matter what you do to it so yeah the cancer man's past is safely ambiguous you've got to think that it's incredibly ambiguous on the basis of he chooses not to shoot throwy yes well, i mean i love the fact he's quoting himself but if he'd been scared that Frohiki had given them enough to identify mm. him, he would have killed him. Yes, absolutely. So the fact that he sort of lets him off. And I suppose the other angle that's sort of fascinating for this episode as well is that as much as the lone gunmen operate on this whole paranoid, secretive seclusion thing, they've got their, their wiretap things to investigate for bugs. They've got their countermeasures. And the councilman just flips a button and just undoes them all. But this seems to get know who they are. And that's enormous, and they have no idea that they oh, they know exactly who they are and what they're doing. It kind of diminishes the power of the magic bullet in this one, in the fact that the fact that the syndicate has not moved against the lone gunman means that they're not afraid of them. No, and it's even... I mean, that does tie back into things like Wet Wired, where they're left holding that device they pulled from the cable box, and he does not care. It's also the fact that... Um, the thinker, their informant, was assassinated immediately or disappeared immediately. Yeah. But the lone gunmen themselves haven't been taken out. No, and so it's it's that's an interesting difference to how the X Files goes because Cancerman seems to be the person of will mop up everyone, regardless of whether they've actually been able to receive the information, unless they clearly know that they're there. And we get into this whole thing of I think we mentioned it a while back of Mulder's role in all this. Is he actually to pull focus off things and the lone gunman another way of pulling focus off of what's actually happening? You've mentioned before the um, Futurama one with the guy who takes the photograph that no one yeah. believes. <laughs> it's that kind of idea is you have the person whose theories are so outlandish that everyone dismisses them. Yeah. So you don't look at the kernel of truth in them. Exactly. And it, it's entirely possible that's why the lone gunman are allowed to continue operating. They might get close to things but not in a position to actually disrupt anything. No, true. It's also interesting, I was going to say it before, but you kind of skipped past it, is that the original script and the original shooting of this episode, Frohiki was assassinated at the end of it. They decided not to go with that in the end because they felt that it made the episode too concrete. You know, if Councilman had to assassinate him, there's the enigma gone. That's fair. I mean, I also like to think it would make working with Tom Braidwood a bit more awkward with the whole, you know, I get to do this every now and again and you killed my character off. How dare you? Because he's just on set anyway as a director of photography. Paul Langley and Byers still going, apparently, without Frohickey. I don't think Langley's actually in this one. He's not credited, because I think he doesn't speak. Is it just Byers It's you just hear? Byers. It's Byers and Frohickey, the only voices you hear. And it wasn't meant to be a week off for um, Duchovny and Anderson, but basically it turned into that because everything is stock footage or voiceover. Mm, true. But to dig into some of the more interesting bits and pieces in this episode, and... It's it's a, kind of a blink and miss it, and I don't think I ever picked up on it before. It's when Bill Mulder, and it's the same Bill Mulder we saw in Apocrypha, interestingly, but it's not the same Cancer Man, is he shows Cancer Man the picture of his wife and son while Cancer Man is reading. And it's the fact that Cancer Man sort of looks at this photo and hangs on to it, because he's looking at it just before the um, Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. It's really odd, and I think you can also read something to that by conjecturing the fact he says, I'm going to spend Christmas with my family, and then immediately walks past Mulder's office yeah, as well. Yeah, there, we're hinting at something. We've already got a hint at an extramarital affair. With Tina. It's, yeah. I'm wondering if we're leaning into the Mulder's dad may not be who we think is Mulder's dad. Yeah, and from memory, this was a... I can't remember if this gave rise to or was actually... Um, I forgot the name of the episode. What came before Heronvoke? Talitha Kumi. Talitha Kumi. I can't remember if Talitha Kumi was where that originated or this had been circulating for a while, but certainly speculations about Mulder's parentage were in the air around this time. Again, it's an odd detail to put in is if we're 
We've got to assume, I guess, then, that what we are witnessing is Cancer Man's memory and not what Frohiki's saying, because I don't think Frohiki would mention, and then he was standing there with a photo <laughs> of you, Mulder. Well, yeah, you think also the, yeah, the Bill Mulder character appearing in the story would cause Mulder to go, wait, what? Yeah, that feels like a contradiction to what we previously knew about the Cancer Man and Bill Mulder's relationship from um, Talitha Kumi. Yeah, and I think, I'm not sure if this is, again, this is plausible deniability or this is people of fudging timelines, because we know Morgan and Wong have contradicted things by not watching other episodes, because mm. that's how Little Green Men happen. True. But you have that issue of um, their re- relationship previously has been portrayed as being very different. I guess we're only seeing snippets of the Cancer Man's backstory, so you could say things like, Bill Mulder was his war buddy and he brought him into the syndicate that way. Yeah. And we also got to assume that what we're getting is a heavily abridged version of the story anyway, but given that we don't get how he was inducted into the conspiracy, because he's doing kind of mundane political conspiracy stuff in this episode he's not doing the weird x-files conspiracy level stuff until the meeting with deep throat i saw comparisons with this written online to the start of apocalypse now with the way um martin sheen's character is sent to assassinate colonel kurtz yes it's the talking around what you want them to do but if you know you know what they're asking yeah which interestingly also ties into the uh roman the cliff means a novel with a key Ah, okay. a, a novel with a key in literature is the idea of it's a true account that's been portrayed as being fiction, where the key wouldn't actually be in the text. The, key, the idea of the key is if you know what they're talking about, you know what the true events are. Which is that thing I like when the, the consortium, do, the syndicate do it. Like it's, when they say UFO, that's too direct, but they always talk, they're, or they're illusion. Yeah, it's the final solution. Yeah, it, that it's kind of that thing. kind of thing where, you know, it's something that seems innocuous, but if you know, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's like when they said our friends and in Paperclip and we you can interpret that as the CIA assassins. You can also interpret it as the aliens who showed up. We don't know which one it was or both. So I like that. And we also note that Ramona Cliff is the name of the magazine that it was being serialized in because that didn't come up in the synopsis. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's where I got Ramona Cliff from. I wasn't just pontificating. <laughs> no, no, no. It kind of knew it was always true, sort of. And I think Talitha Kumi alluded to it. But to actually see Deep Throat and Cancer Man talk to each other, that's really odd when you think about it. Given that the way, if you were asked to typefy them in season one, and anything past season one, Deep Throat is on the good side and Sacred Smoking Man is, is the villain. And to see them sort of like just having this kind of casual conversation as old work colleagues, not really friends as much, but as people who've been in this too long to think of each other as anything else. And just see them talk about these things is just shifts your opinion of Deep Throat, I think. Because we always knew he was not on as much on the level as he wanted to make out, but he was willing to go to bat for Mordor. There was a really interesting conversation with Deep Throat late in this episode where Cancerman says something like, You've killed more people with your lies than I have. Yeah. And it's. We don't get into how and why Deep Throat is what Deep Throat has done over the years we know that Deep Throat is powerful we don't mm. know exactly who he is no. though it does potentially give his name as Ronald in this episode which I yes. thought was kind of interesting I'd also thought it's a nice touch for him to lose the coin toss and have to go and shoot the alien yeah and that feeds right back into EBE which I think was also Morgan and Wong which explains why this connects so gracefully of how he insinuates in that film he did it that time as well so it's a case of this is his first one. He's killed God knows how many in five years or something. But that's an interesting interesting distinction between the shapeshifters and the greys then, in that apparently the greys you can just shoot in the head and the shapeshifters you have to do the back of the neck. Again, we don't know what we're seeing is true. We don't. But the insinuation there is just, it's just you just need to hang on it. It's fine. You've still got the idea that their blood is toxic in the fact that Deep Throat puts the respirator on before he goes in. Yes, and I also, also equate it back to Little Green Men where Mordor tries to shoot the shape in the doorway and the gun doesn't work. Yeah. So I think if they're conscious, you're, you're out of luck, but since it's in critical condition, it can't do anything. True. It's how I interpret it anyway. I also like the portrayal of the real-world events in this episode because we've talked about the alien a lot, but the first two chapters we see of um, the Cancer Man's life is him assassinating JFK and Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. Which is kind of interesting as they feed into like real-world real conspiracies about the events. Absolutely. 
because you have the whole thing. It's even the alias he uses, I believe, kind of correspond with real world conspirators and things like that. Oh, okay, that's kind of cool. But the JFK one with the idea of the magic bullet. So it's the whole, the shot isn't being fired from the book depository, it's been fired from the sewer. Yeah. I mean, I thought that the odd thing about that version of the conspiracy, because you normally get, um, I mean, the one that I keep coming back to is always Red Dwarf, where basically we are firing from so many different angles. So the interesting thing about this assassination is usually you get multiple gunshots from places. This is probably the only one I've seen where Lee Harvey Oswald doesn't fire a shot. Because usually you get someone, you'd actually have someone on that floor in the book depository shooting down. Mm. But the episode implies that it's all Cancerman from the sewer grate. I believe, I know there are hundreds of conspiracy theories about this. The idea is usually that from the angle he was, Lee Harvey Oswald could never have made the shot which is why there has to be a second shooter, which all ties in with that um, the man on the grassy knoll who mysteriously flashes his umbrella and yeah. things like that. And it's really odd to see that and actually go, if you go and look at the computer footage, yeah, this guy is doing that and it's not clear why he's doing that. Mm. It is very, very odd, but again, it's the things we'll never know. Indeed. I mean, uh, I've got two little details <laughs> on that, at least, is one of the weirdest conspiracies I've ever heard about uh, the assassination was as uh, Zapruder himself was shooting, and that's why the camera jumps whenever the gunshot fires. Yeah. yeah. The other was the magic. Um, I did hit read a more recent explanation for the magic bullet, which unfortunately takes a lot of the the conspiracy and the magic out of it, and it's all to do with clothes rumpling. Okay. Because the the whole the whole thing about the magic bullet is based on the bullet wounds in the clothing. Oh right. And so it's one of those whole if things rumpled up or we're not in the we're not you know completely flat. You're going to get the bullet going through what looks like contradictory layers. I see. So it's like punching a hole in folded paper rather than the bullet kind of leaving his neck and looping back round yeah. or whatever it's supposed to have done. And I think uh, this is really kind of ap- apocryphal and probably not a good basis of anything, but the computer magazine Amiga Power, of all things, towards the end of the Amiga's life, basically, they didn't have anything to review. So they started doing increasingly strange special, special issues. One of them was a conspiracy issue, because they actually quite like conspiracy theories. And they did a whole thing about JFK, so they got someone with about the right kind of gun at the right kind of distance, and were trying to figure out if you could actually fire that many shots in the amount of time that Lee Harvey Oswald had. To their disappointment, they discovered that actually, yes, if he was a good enough marksman and fast enough, you could actually do the shots, because that was another big thing in the conspiracy, is he couldn't shoot that fast. Turns out you can. The interesting things option often with these conspiracies, though, is... The assassins are people of low intelligence who swear to death that they didn't do it and they were framed. Because that's also the case, interestingly, with the Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Is that James Earl Ray kind of swore to his death that he was set up by the government and he didn't do it. And even the fact that Martin Luther King Jr.'s children helped defend him in court and try and get this put back to trial. But of course, I guess then you've got the conspiracy angle of if you're up against the government, he's never going to win. No. And I, I just find it interesting, and we did comment on this when we were watching the episode, is... Everyone knows who killed JFK. No one remembers who killed Martin Luther King Jr. You're making the assumption of we're English here. Is oh, yeah. That but- I had to look up the name of the um, reported assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. Everybody knows both Lee Harvey Oswald's name and the entire circumstances with him you know, being later caught at the movie theatre and things like yeah. that. And those are all nicely done shots and everything, but... I particularly like the sensitivity of the Martin Luther King sequence, um, which is all really nicely shot in black and white as well. But it's the the level of respect that the councilman has for him. It's the kind of honourable assassin idea of he insists on doing it himself because he respects him so much and things like that. Yeah, it was that was it's an interesting frame for him. And again, it would be easier since that one's in black and white and the other sequences aren't to say this is him heavily editorialising his memories at this point. It's interesting as you watch the trajectory of his addiction to cigarettes throughout all of these ones as well, is he keeps trying to get up, but whenever he's involved in one of these high-level assassinations, it kind of sucks him back in. It's like the whole, he only smokes when he's unhappy, and in modern day, he's chain-smoking, so what does that tell you about his life? Yeah, but he starts, though, when Deep Throat kills the alien. It's when he pulls a nicotine patch off his neck, Mm. which is another interesting detail. It's interesting for that framing. It's, I, I've got to admit that I'm on the side of this one where I, I really like the Museum of Cigarette Smoking Man. I, I enjoy it more every time I see it because I always find something different in there. It's a very complex episode for the X-Files. 
But I like more the fact it's focusing on somebody who's as repellent as the Cancer Man. And you make him even more repellent in this episode, given he's the man who killed Martin Luther King Jr. But you still feel sorry for him. You do. And that's mostly tied into, and I think you actually have a lot of sympathy with this, it's the rejection letters from the publisher. You've never received anything on the vitriolic as he has. Yeah, if you follow me on Twitter, you know the fact that I have been trying to write a novel for years. And I have tried to pitch to publishers before, and the kind of rejection letters you get cut you up. But I have never got anything just as vile and harsh as the ones the cigarette smoking man it's, it's gets. Only the, it's only the first one we see. I don't think we just we know the second one he opens is rejection because the just first it up. one where he opens open it basically just says your shit, haha. <laughs> yeah, the characters are crap and the plot is completely unbelievable. Yeah, my heart bleeds for him, but it's the whole as well as you feel sorry for him because he's a man who never really had a choice. It's just the illusion of choice throughout the whole thing. Is he was offered this kind of job where it wasn't entirely clear what it entailed but it you knew from the start it was something heavy and he never realized at the time of taking it the toll it would have on him through his life yeah i also like how they talk again it's they talk around what they're asking him to do because it's when they describe jfk it's really interesting they say your subject is an american citizen married and they give more and more details until it's clear who it is Mm. they don't come out and say we want you to kill jfk you know from the fact that they're going to erase his identity that it's someone high profile, though. Yes. And it's also that he, the other assassinations are dodgy, but this is a level, an order of magnitude more intense than what he was doing before. But I think also there's an interesting corruption of Cigarette Smoking Man, implied in the episode at least. When we first see him in the past, he's reading. And he's, re- he's reading The Manchurian Candidate, Incredibly appropriate book for Cancer Man, all things considered. Yeah. But his comment is, he doesn't like to watch TV or go to the movies. And then it's as after the assassination happened, and apparently those other assassinations are fine, but it's, presumably it's working against your own countries, the poison to him. He goes to the movie theatre. And we know many years later, in One Breath, he's going to spend his nights slumped in an armchair with a beer and a cigarette, just watching, just... TV, the thing he would not do when he was an army cadet. And so I think it's he's got a love of novels and reading in the past, and that bleeds away as he becomes embroiled in the conspiracy. I think you really feel it in this episode that, again, I will cite that you can't like the Cancerman. There is no. nothing likable about him, but he's old and he's lonely, You know, especially in that scene where he refuses to go to the kind of Christmas get-together with his subordinates yeah. and buys them all the same tie that he's wearing in the scene. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it. It's one of these weird ones where you've got to say the episode's really sad, but it's got these, and also really depressing and kind of terrible because of what he's done. But there are those little moments of humor, like, you know, he buys everyone the same tie. So that's both funny and utterly tragic. We've got the black comedy of the chocolate box scene as well, where yeah. he redoes the Forrest Gump chocolate box scene in a kind of negative spin. Yeah. But it's like the whole thing is like the anti-Forrest Gump as you go along with the fact that he is present at all of these famous historical events and he causes something negative to happen out of them rather than taking something positive away. Absolutely. It's kind of charming just to see how proud he is of his writing each time because every time he sort of finishes a page, he's really proud of what he's done and no one appreciates it. It's when he gets that phone call from Roman LeCliff as well where he's already got ideas of what he wants the cover art to be like as well. And they kind of put him in his box while he's on the phone call. Yeah. So the cutting remark of, that's why we like to work with young writers. It's like, ow! He's uh, been going since, he's got to be in his, what, 60s or something at that point? I'd say he's got to be at least in his 60s. Yeah. Way too old and uh, paid a pittance as well. I mean, I don't, I think even at the time, 2,500 was not great. For a magazine serial. Maybe that was, yeah, maybe that was about typical, but basically he was not getting anything past that since he seems to be in a Playboy knockoff from the cover. And doesn't retain any rights or anything like that. No. So yeah, we, we, do, we do feel a bit sorry for him. We do get some interesting descriptions of him, though, like when you know he's considered the world, um, most dangerous man in the world. And there's that great moment after the um, newsstand guy has sort of said, are you, are you going to buy that? Who would want to read that crap? And he just strides towards him, and it's very much, uh, he's probably killed people for less than this. Mm. And you're going to come through this somehow. 
and not realize who you've talked to and quite your brush with this world-spanning conspiracy. Yeah. And also how chipper he is when he walks up to the newsstand before all his dreams are crushed. Yeah, it, it's heartbreaking, really. And you wouldn't think you could feel sorry for the cigarette-smoking man, and yet here we are. Yeah, we are. I mean, I do also like the implication that he was ready to quit. He's going to quit the conspiracy. Quit to be the a writer. To, to be follow a writer. his dream. Yeah. And in fact, he typed it out and signed it and everything. It's like, just kind of an amazing thing to see. Mm. Like, Mordor's greatest nemesis is just going to take himself off the board to go write fiction. Alas, does not come to pass. You imagine they would never let him as well. He's not going to make it out alive doing what he's done and knowing what he knows. True, but he's also the kind of person who would have, like, fail-saves. Like, you know, you can kill... Okay, you can kill me. Just be aware that if you do, certain things will uh, trigger and, you know, public uh, documents will be handed to news companies around the world. You might be able to stop some of them, but you won't stop all of them and you will be exposed. You, you, your best bet is to let me um, go off and live my life, which admittedly then does contradict. Although I think that scene is actually set prior to the X Files starting, isn't it? It's the timeline's a bit vague at this point. Basically, I think that has to really happen before Telethi Kumi because otherwise, Cancerman's too invested in Telethi Kumi to even possibly take this avenue out, isn't he? Mm. He has to have already said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in for the long haul now, I'm going to see this through. Yeah. Especially as Talitha Kumi has revealed that he's potentially dying. Yeah, we're, we're still going to assume he must have asked the Foundations to, to cure him. I've got to assume from the way that's framed. It, or Jeremiah Smith, yeah, one of them has to have done it's it. If Smith can cure lung cancer, I guess, but... I mean, it feels in the odd detail that his mother also died of lung cancer, and does he know that? Should he not be taking this into account? If it's true. If it's true. All we have is Frohiki's words to go on. Do you have anything else for this episode? No, I think that's everything. And But there is one thing I'd just like to quickly put a pin in, and that's your comments about Cancerman potentially being able to expose people, because fear of exposure is really what drives Tom Guska the next episode. Ooh, that's a good point. <laughs> Thank you for that one. Tom Guska, then. Directed by Kim Manners, written by Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz. First broadcast on the 24th of November, 1996. Guest stars. Boy, do I regret doing it for the slot. All right. I mean, in addition to the regular crew, since this is one of Marita's episodes, uh, you get Skinner, you get Cancer Man, you get Kojek. We also have Fritz Weaver, who plays Senator Sorensen, who, alas, is not Dr. Halsey from Reanimator, though he does look a lot like I was him. so sure. I know. But he was in Creepshow. Oh, was he? He was. He's in the crate section. Gosh, I thought that was Dr. Halsey too, but yeah, yeah, yeah he is. <laughs> uh, he's in The Thomas Crown Affair. He's also in The Invaders, that series that Jeremiah Smith was in. Okay. He's in Tales from the Dark Side. He was on Deep Space Nine. And, but it's been a while, he was on Frasier. Of course he was. There's also Malcolm Stewart as Dr. Sachs, who was in Moon, the um, Sam Rockwell film. Oh, really? He was also in Jumanji. Which one? The uh, original Jumanji, okay. the Robin Williams one. He was in a series of unfortunate events. He's also been in the X-Files three other times. Have we seen him already? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he was in Avatar. Okay, yeah. He was in three. Yeah. He was in Pilot. Ah, right, been right here from the pilot. start, yeah. There's also Campbell Lane, who plays committee chairman, who is just that kind of boarding guy who's... Oh, that guy. That guy. Yeah. He was in Needful Things, the Stephen King film. I've seen it, but I can't place him. Cool Runnings. And then we get into the weirder part. Oh, weirder than Cool Runnings? Scary Movie 4. <laughs> Fair enough. He was the Kalashari Elder in Kalashari. I would not guess that. Neither would I. Uh, but this he also does dub work. He's on Maze on the Coco. Okay. And he's in Gundam Wing. <laughs> he's the narrator. Aww. For the dub, anyway. Nostalgia. Yeah. Brent Strait played Timothy Mayhew. Who was in Final Destination 5? We're not getting away from that film series, are we? Tron Legacy. And you literally just watched this. Omen 4. Poor man. Yep. And Fallen Angel. Ah. And last. Nope. Second to last, we have Andy Thompson, who played second customs official. Who is in Antlers. 
Okay, yeah, I've seen that. Uh, Critters and You Binge. <laughs> Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah. Riverdale. Huh? Dead Like Me. Good selection. And last but not least, Stefan Angrim as Prisoner, who was also in Dead Like Me and will show up in Millennium. Huh. I'm guessing he's the guy through the wall. He is the guy through the wall. So would you like to give us a synopsis for Tunguska? Sure. Our episode opens this time as Scully is brought before the Senate Select Committee being questioned about the whereabouts of Mulder. Scully tries to answer the committee's questions and attempts to read a prepared statement which denounces the conspiracy within the government. Senator Sorensen keeps interrupting, trying to get Scully to reveal Mulder's whereabouts, something she refuses to do so for his safety. He threatens to hold her in contempt of Congress. The episode then cuts to ten days earlier, as a courier, returning from the Republic of Georgia, is searched by custom officials at Honolulu Airport. One of them removes a glass canister from his briefcase, and even though the courier warns him that it contains biohazardous material, he drops it and accidentally breaks it, exposing both the men to the thing that was contained within, the black oil. Meanwhile, in New York City, we see Mulder and Scully taking part in an FBI raid against a domestic terror group. Mulder is present because he was tipped off by someone within the group, which is revealed to be a very alive Alex Krajic. He tells them how the terrorist released him from the Miso Shiloh, where he had been trapped, and he has been working with them ever since. Due to the multiple attempts at Krajic's life, Krajic has now turned against the Cancer Man, and tells the agents that he can help to expose him and the syndicate he works for. Krajic takes them to Dulles International Airport, where they try to apprehend a second courier who is carrying a diplomatic pouch. He's also come from Russia. The courier runs and leads them on a pursuit through the airport, but drops the pouch before he escapes. The pouch is revealed to carry a very ordinary-looking rock. Mulder leaves Krajic in the hands of a very responsible Walter Skinner, who handcuffs him on his balcony before they leave to have the rock analysed at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre. Dr Sachs, a NASA scientist, tells Mulder and Scully that the rock is some kind of prehistoric meteorite, and he wants to analyse the fragment further because it may contain fossilised alien bacteria. Skinner is approached on the street by the cancer man, who demands that the pouch be returned. Meanwhile, the courier breaks into Skinner's apartment and searches for the pouch, He's defeated by Krajic, who throws him off Skinner's balcony. Back at NASA, Dr. Sachs cuts into the rock fragment, inadvertently releasing the black oil from inside it. The oil penetrates his hazmat suit and puts him into a weird coma-like state, one that causes him to initially seem dead when examined. Mulder returns to New York to visit his informant, Marita Kovarubius, who reveals that the fragment was indeed part of a meteor and originated from the Russian province of Krasnoyarsk and provides documents that he needs to travel there. Mulder brings along Krajic somewhat reluctantly after Krajic reveals that he is fluent in Russian. The cigarette-smoking man travels to Virginia to meet with well-manicured man and is admonished by him when the well-manicured man learns about Mulder's travels. Meanwhile, Skinner and Scully are subpoenaed to appear before Senator Sorensen's panel over the missing pouch. When Skinner questions Scully about Mulder's whereabouts, she refuses to tell even him. Meanwhile, Mulder and Krajic hike through the forests of Russia. Mulder theorises that the meteor fragment may be tied to the famous Tunguska event. This is a mysterious cosmic impact that occurred in 1908, a real-world event where trees were levelled in a vast area as it's believed a meteor or a part of a comet crashed into the ground. The two men eventually come across a gulag, a slave labour camp, but are captured by the taskmasters and thrown into prison. Skinner and Scully both meet with Senator Sorensen, who questions them about the death of the courier in Skinner's apartment and the location of Agent Mulder. Meanwhile, Mulder talks with a prisoner through the walls of his cell who tells him that innocent people have been captured and brought there to be subjected to experiments. Krajic speaks with the guards in Russian, claiming that he's trying to find a way to clear their names. The man through the wall says otherwise. He tells Mulder that Krajic is speaking with the guard as an equal, and he is certainly not his friend. As guards burst into the room and inject Mulder with a shringe, 
He finds himself falling unconscious. He awakens in a large room with a lot of other prisoners bound with chicken wire. Black material is dumped onto his face, which infects him with the black oil. Dun, dun, dun. It should be noted that this one is part of a two-parter. <laughs> we'll be talking about Terma its second half next week. Really? Oh, I thought it was just that was it. That it was, was it. Like, Mulder's <laughs> gone now. Mulder's gone now, yeah. He's been infected by the black oil. Episode over. It, next week will be Squeeze 3. <laughs> I I just... I like this episode. Yeah, I liked Hungusker a lot too. It's very fast-paced. It is very fast-paced, and... In a way, I don't think Telus Akumi quite had the same way. It feels like think the conspiracy is going somewhere. I mean, it has nothing to do with Telus Akumi, but it feels like there's something something's in the in the air. I think because we brought the oil back, it's more connected with Piper Maru. Yes, and Apocrypha. And interesting that Krychek mentions the North Dakota thing, given that. Mulder isn't actually where necessarily certain that Krychek is was there yeah. when he was there. It's kind of a weird one for the audience. Like, oh yeah, they came to find me in North Dakota. It's like, were you sure he was in that room? You didn't actually I see him. I guess it's your weak explanation of why he's in the Shiloh. The why a domestic terror group would find him quick enough to rescue him is beyond me. Well, yeah, he was not in a good way at the end there. But we'll leave that for now. To make to make a slightly weird point to start with, Tunguska is one of these. Is, as you said, is a real-world event that's always quite um, fun that used to be just a thing people alluded to. I mean, it's notable that the original Ghostbusters, 1984, basically, there's a quote, because he mentioned at the end of the film, of you were involved in the biggest international cross-rip since the Tunguska Blast of 1909. 1908. I think uh, he says 1908 or 1909. I can't remember. I think it's 1909 he says in the film. It was in 1908. Yeah. But it's, it's a fun, throwaway thing. The Ghostbusters afterlife ruined by making part of the cosmic cycle of Goza. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the actual event was people reported seeing a fireball in the sky and then something impacted in the forest and just leveled it for kilometres in every direction. And it's believed to be one of the biggest meteor impacts in known history. Yeah. Uh, and it's weird uh, expressions like antimatter and uh, micro black holes and all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah, I think largely people believe it's either a meteorite or it's part of a comet yeah, that crashed which makes, down. Makes the most sense. But this we've got is black oil. Although the black oil's operating very differently in this episode, despite ostensibly being the same stuff from Piper Myron Apocrypha. Yeah, it's a little different, though I guess we've got it in a different state as well. Because the black oil we saw in Piper Maru has been in that state for decades. It's just been stuck in a ship at the bottom of the ocean, a plane at the bottom of the ocean. Whereas this one, we're getting it by drilling it out of rocks. That's true. I mean, uh, that is presumably the explanation. It's, it's just, it's very odd that we established it as a body hijack thing. Unless it puts you into a coma. I'm not sure about the nature of the black oil even because it was inferred in Piper Maru that the oil it's in is just normal engine oil. Yeah. Whereas it definitely comes out of the rock in that state. <laughs> I suppose the fact that, you know, oil is made deep in the earth, it's fair enough it could still be existing in a petroleum sort of state. True, but it's one of these weird ones where that sounds... I think it was fine in Piper Maru and Apocrypha, but because there's a lot of... It wasn't clear where it came from, was it, ultimately? It's down in a plane as well, and, you know, planes have fuel, so mm. fair enough it could have got into this petroleum some way. But... If you're um, drilling holes or cutting apart a meteorite fragment, petrol is a processed stuff. It's not naturally occurring. Mm. So if you find petroleum chemicals in a meteorite, you're going to be saying, wait a minute. What's to say it's not <laughs> naturally occurring on Alpha Centauri, though? Well, it's in Zeta 2 Reticuli. Zeta 2 Reticuli? Zeta 2 Reticuli is the one they mentioned in Squeeze. Okay, fair it's enough. It's also the star in Alien. So you know, it's got sci-fi pedigree. Fair enough, you're going with that one instead of Alpha Centauri. Yep, they just do particularly. <laughs> That's the one you go for. But yeah, but I mean, yeah, there are explanations for why the black oil is a bit different in this one. But it is odd that it's that dramatically different. Because given the black oil was quite a malevolent force last time. And it seems, well, again, it's coming in a different state and maybe it's working differently, but it seems a lot less... Or maybe even more threatening, to be fair. The fact it puts a guy into a waking coma rather than 
just turning him into a walking atom bomb, essentially. Well, I was saying, that more or less concerning, because the atom bomb thing, it was very localised radiation From it was doing. From the purpose of potentially being locked in with it, I, I'd say the coma's maybe a bit scarier. Yeah, I can see that. And to be fair, it didn't seem to actually hurt its hosts last time. It just hurt everyone around it. No, it, well, it did leave you in a pool of goop towards the it? But everyone around you was left with fatal radiation well, burns, yeah, so yeah. I think I'd rather have the oil in that case. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's fair. One thing I like about this episode, and it's... I don't know if it's intentional, but you can take it as an optimistic thing for the conspiracy failing. And this is reading into a bit. Is it's that first courier. He's got diplomatic papers. He's used to being waved through airports. Custom says, no, go into this room over here. And he has to comply with that and then says, um, okay, what are you transporting in this briefcase? Oh, it's by hazardous material. Well, then where's the paperwork? We're just going to undo everything. And I take it as the conspiracy and the syndicate seem all powerful, but there's a weird chink somewhere that this event has happened in. This shouldn't have happened, and yet it has. They're not all powerful. And so even their most secure couriers are vulnerable to customers saying, yeah, we're going to look through your luggage anyway. I don't like the security of someone carrying something as hazardous as the black oil in a glass tube on an aeroplane, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose that does come back into the whole difference in behaviour. Because I'd be, I think, again, you can argue it both ways, but the fact if it could infect someone and turn them into a walking atom bomb, like you said, that's going to keep on chaining its way through different people looking for something. I can see some of the precautions, but if it just puts them to a coma and then that's it, that feels easier for them to cover up again afterwards because we don't know what happened to that sec- that um, customs agent, do we? But I'm actually wondering if we ever do find out what happened to the poor guy. I don't know. Maybe it'll come up in Terma. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> But I just like his attitude, though, just sort of, yep, got to pull this open. Oh, don't open that, don't open that. Why? What is it? Smash. Oh, hells. I'm not so sure our special effect for the oil infecting people has aged very well either. No, I mean, the Dr. Sachs one, when it's splattered on his visor, looks noticeably ropey. Yeah, I suppose we are criticising something that's almost 30 years old now. Yeah. The, stuff, the eyeball stuff, though, and that, apparently that was all TGI, that still looks really good. Yeah, it's quite nice when it clears eyeballs. It's when it looks like little kind of oily maggots just crawling across things. Or you could you could say the obvious inspiration, which is Terminator 2. This is the liquid metal trick. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot Done like again. that. But with black instead of silver. You see, it's totally different. It is totally different, yeah. It's not the T-1000, it's the black oil. Honest. Crycheck exposing his group is... I don't know, the whole setup of the episode feels... In retrospect, really weird. Because Crash has gotten involved with this domestic terrorist group that he's just betrayed to Mulder immediately. And then we basically just throw all that out the window because of, okay, no, he knows when a secure courier is coming through carrying something interesting. The Crashic can't, can't or won't. Does he know what that rock is? Because he looks as perplexed as they do when they show it to him. I reckon he does. Yeah. But he somehow knows that this guy's coming, carrying something. I mean, to be honest, though, Mulder and, Mulder and Scully shouldn't be so dismissive. I mean, they do get it checked out, but it should still be a point of interest to them of this guy has got diplomatic clearance, has come through customs with a diplomatic pouch, and it contains a rock. There has to be something weird about that rock, otherwise you wouldn't be doing this. Mm. There are easy ways to smuggle these things through customs. It is. It's, it feels really dark, but it's kind of nice to see Project get beat up. Like Skinner getting a good shot in. Oh, he'll be fine here. You can't leave me out here or I'll freeze on this balcony. I just like anything that shows Krajic in peril, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Although Mulder apparently is being completely stupid trusting that. Why does Mulder trust Krajic? Even for a second. I was somewhat concerned. I was like, oh, you speak Russian. Why not come with me? No. But you don't speak Russian, Mulder. You don't know if he's telling the truth, which is what the prisoner was saying. Also, Krajnik's as bad as the Cancer Man is, everything he says is a lie. Yes. If we haven't figured this out yet. And we really should have figured out a long time ago. Yeah, totally trust the Russian-speaking assassin who probably murdered your father. Yeah, and in, in, was a liar from the moment you met him. Because he, he was a plant in the FBI. Just a rat, and you just wouldn't. 
Yeah. Well, no, no. Take an English to Russian dictionary with you and just work (laughs) it as you go. Again, well, I think this does feed into a long-standing problem Mordor has, and at least it's consistent of if you say you have these things for him, he will blindly trust you, like he's blindly trusting well manicured man in previous times. I try to think of another example, but he's blindly trusted a lot of other people. He and Scully's always there to say, "Are you sure, Mordor?" Every informant he's ever had. Every informant, yeah. Marita being weirdly helpful this time. Despite yeah, even giving him falsified papers. Yeah. <laughs> also, Mulder, boundaries. You've turned up at her apartment in the middle of the night. Mulder must love this. You've got someone who he actually knows where she lives and he doesn't have to tape across on the window <laughs> or leave a cryptic phone call to get hold of. Yeah. I think she's going to move shortly, isn't she? It's like, no, no, Mulder. Not she's going. made a huge mistake. I should never talk to that man. She is a lot less uh, affronting with him this time. I just find her less interesting than the other informants, which is a shame because I love the fact that Mulder's new informant is female, but X and Deep Throat both had a lot of character and she... I couldn't narrow down her personality yet. That's fair. I mean, X was meant to be female. We know full well they filmed it, but then reshot it with um, Stephen Williams. Nobody could have done it as well as Stephen Williams. No, he was very good. But, I mean, that is a good point with Marita is you don't get the impression from her at all, and I don't know if this is a conscious thing or not, that she knows much more than he does. Yeah, it's not like Deep Throat you knew was at the core of whatever this is. Yeah, he knew exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on. He's very approachable like your favourite uncle, and he's very intelligent. Then you had X, who was more of the enforcer, who was standoffish, he was physically imposing. And now we've got Marita, and she's just a bit, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, well, X was always knee-deep in whatever was going on. I'm going to give you a few hints. Marita is like in the nice air-conditioned hotel down the street. She's, she, I don't know. I don't think they really, they really have a handle on how they're using her. It's a problem I'll get into as well with this episode. It's just the female characters in general. Because Scully's role in this episode is really, really bland as well. Again, it's Mulder's going to go off and do the exciting thing. Scully, you go and do the boring bit. It's a reoccurring problem we're having with the conspiracy episodes is that Scully will be involved for a little bit and then she'll be given something to analyse and essentially sit out the rest of the episode. Well, I think also as a, as a repeated beat is Scully has to go to a high-level meeting that Mulder's meant to be at and he's not. <laughs> yeah. But we saw it in we saw it in Talitha Kumi too. I think we did it in Piper Maru as well as Scully takes the thing to be analysed and Mulder is then in the field and he gets to see the weird stuff because we can't allow Scully to see it. No, although she has potentially got it with Dr. Sachs and with Agent Pendrel helping. But again, in Scully mode, they have found a unknown viral infection or some, yeah. some kind of unknown infectant. Yeah. Didn't get to see the gulag where they're, <laughs> where they're digging up black oil. You notice that Pendrel has become the scientist as well. He, he used to be like our computer guy. Yeah, we had that discussion of, yeah, all... When you're a scientist in TV, you are all sciences. And if you're involved with computers, you're all computers, but also all sciences on top of that. It's, Pendrel was much more techie previously. Now it's like, no, let's go and look at this kind of potential viral infection. Like, Pendrel, why are you here? And the other thing, though, about that bit was weird. It was a case of, um, oh, we've got level five suits. Yeah, but so does he. And he's infected with something. <laughs> oh, can we get to a tear? What tear? We didn't see a tear. It just got in through the suit. Yeah, I don't like going into the guy who's been infected in the hazmat suit wearing the same hazmat suits at all. Yep, masking tape around your wrist's fine, but don't like it. No. I do have to wonder what's going to happen to that sample in part two, because that feels a really troublesome thing to not have control of. Uh, in a kind of connection to Mutant to the Cigarette Smoking Man, it's interesting to see well manicured man with a family. You assume it's a family, anyway. Assume, they're, they're relatives or they've got some connection to him. He's just kind of out in the field watching some dressage. Yeah. But it's he's deliberately gone there because there's no phone signals or no phone service. Understandable. Yeah, because he wants to get away from the conspiracy for a while. And, you know, Cigarette Smoking Man turns up to ruin, ruin the situation for him. But it's interesting, again, it's kind of like Cigarette Smoking Man, Amusing uh, Cigarette Smoking Man, with the, they do actually have lives outside of the conspiracy. It never feels like they do, but they have to. Yeah. There has to be a moment where they're not on, and this is found he's well manicured man. Not sure where I'm going with that, but it's, it's an interesting thing to see, at least. 
They've all got their hobby. It, it fleshes them out better that they're not just these evil shadowy cartel staring with their reflective glasses over steepled fingers, as they have lives and family and hobbies and things like that. Yeah, we need to get what First Elder's hobby is. Do you reckon knitting? Crochet. Crochet is quite a good one, yeah. I was thinking flower arranging. Yeah. I think he needs something kind of passive and cute. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if we've seen him for a while, though, so I don't know. If they do, they're not as fond of First Elder, are they? It's a shame. I, I do think Well Manicured has more presence, but I like the kind of difference between them when you've got this kind of sophisticated English gentleman and essentially a mafia don next to him. <laughs> yeah, and whatever the hell's a good Pokemon is. Wiles kind of gets kidnapped a lot. Mortar gets captured a lot, I feel, in the X-Files. It's not got the same feel. It's not got the same feel, and the implications are very different from a writing stance, but this is Mortar has gone to a place, been captured again. It's a lot of sheer stupidity on Mortar's part, because he basically walks into a gulag. Yes. You could be a bit more subtle with digging under the rays of wire, and on the tree line, you could have hidden in the tree line before spying on the prisoners. Interesting for your trivia as well, that's real razor wire. Oh, okay. <laughs> Apparently it was very upsetting for the actors, but they tried with rubber and it didn't look right filmed. So they made the actors actually dig under sharpened metal razor wire, which they weren't too happy about because of safety implications. I can well believe that being an uncomfortable and unwanted situation. Yeah, I don't have much trivia for this episode, but there you go. That's what I got. Thanks, Chris. Or whichever one of you is responsible for that one. Uh, there is some interesting implications about the prison on at least we've got. Mordor has been. In... Mordor gets injected with two things before the final shot. Uh, we assume the first thing is an anesthetic before he's sort of put into chicken wire. And there's an injection site on his arm we see just before they sort of pour some black oil on him. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a, lo- there's a little bit of cotton wool taped to his arm. Almost like he's had a smallpox vaccine. Almost like he's had a, a vaccination of some kind. Uh, we need to see term really to see what the implication of that is, but we can we could make an educated guess there that maybe the black oil can be fought back against. So, like, we're testing a vaccine? Yes. Interesting if true, and interesting implications for Mulder going forward than if that's true. Although it's kind of a bit of a shame that the black oil is operating differently, because... How a profound experience would it be for Mulder to be taken over by an alien organism? And I don't think people in Piper Murray remembered it happening, did they? No, nobody remembered having the oil no, in them. Yeah. So just him, the feeling of being overwhelmed and then coming to sometime later, having done God knows what, what an effect that would have on Mulder, because that's more of a direct interaction with the supernatural than he's had for a long while. But sadly, he won't remember it. He won't remember it, but he'll he'll know something's happened. But he's not going to get that if that is a vaccine. True. It's interesting, I didn't notice that, but the fact that this is Russia developing a vaccine, and we know that America has potentially been developing a plague. Yeah, but they've also been carting bits of that of rock that contained the black oil back to the US for some reason. It's You're feeling a very kind of Cold War feel to this. It's moves and counter moves. Yeah. So Russia have said, "Yep, we're not we're not doing whatever the black oil has become of conspiracy thing." Because as much as we tied Piper Maru and Apocrypha into the conspiracy at large, it only kind of affected those two episodes. But now we're kind of dragging more of an international conspiracy into proceedings, aren't we? I'm game. The black oil is one of the best things they've introduced to the X-Files. Oh yeah, it's a more truly unique alien concept than we've had. It's much more interesting than our dancing grey aliens in hallways. (laughs) I'm totally on board if we want to just turn this conspiracy around and focus on the oil, to be honest. No, that's fair. It's also, but again, they come back to the whole... It's not as malevolent as it was, because I think that was part of the charm in, in Piper Myra and Apocrypha, was this thing is actively dangerous. It can, it can be a, a, an infiltrator, but cross it and it will potentially just murder you. It's the fact it's sentient in itself as well. So you've got this idea of it, if you're, what you're saying is right about a vaccine, of like a sentient bacterium. Yeah, which is a very odd concept. Yeah, I'm sold. I'm interested to see how this is going to develop into Terma. 
I quite like the entire scene at the Gulag as well, as stupid as it is that Mulder has wandered <laughs> into this situation completely naively. Trusting Krajek. Trusting Krajek, yeah. But I like the whole exchange through the wall with the prisoner who we only see his eyes because it's very reminiscent of V for Vendetta. Yes, which I would not be surprised if it was an influence. I'm sure it was. I, I don't imagine you had the film of V for Vendetta at the stage, but you would have had the comic book. It, it's very much that same feeling, though, of the conversation with the unseen person through the walls. Yeah. The one who, the, the actual helpful voice. Mm. Who's going through the same thing and has been going through it for longer and knows what's going on. Yeah, I mean, there was the whole thing about you, you've come here to die and um, test. And it's the screams from everyone else around Mordor when it starts. It's actually quite chilling. It's not That whole sequence is really scary. And it's comparing with what we saw of Scully's abduction, which was very clean and very white and very sterile, though still scaring. Yeah. Is you've got this gritty industrial kind of Soviet version of it with naked men chained to tables with chicken wire and just almost like um, a gas nozzle over their heads spilling the black oil onto them. Yeah. It's really, really kind of the scary World War II concentration camp feel to it. Yes, which I imagine is what they're going for. I mean, we are completely built buying into the um, kind of pop culture view of um, Russia and you know, Russia kind of set stuff of it's always going to be clunkier, dirtier, and more low-tech than the US well, stuff. Well, you've got the idea of the gulags were inherently terrifying because it's not something that we ever really talk about much, but it's this World War II trivia is many more people died in gulags than they did in concentration camps. The concentration camps have the wider shock to them because it was largely targeting entire like social groups. Yeah. Whereas gulags was any dissenters were just flung into them. But... I- I learned about them a bit when I did my A-levels, when I did um, Russian history and that. And they're terrifying. They're grim. More people died of like disease and starvation in them than actually any torture and stuff like that. It's so scary, and we've portrayed that just quite well in that one scene. Oh, yeah. With terrible food and roaches. Though it could, could be an alien probe that's come to say... Could it be trying to help Mulder? Apparently, if you watch that scene with the closed captions on, he calls the roach Bambi. Ah, I did not hear that in that one. No, but, I didn't oh, see okay. it. Apparently it's if you watch it with the closed captions. Yeah. He picks it up and says Bambi, like it's a question. <laughs> no, no, it was the alien. Weird, weird nod to War of the Copper Pages. A, a nice touch, but a bit, a bit odd, yes. Uh, do you have anything else? No, I don't think I do. Um, it's a really, really good episode. Really fast-paced and exciting it jumps about a lot, and I wish they'd given Scully more to do, but other than that, it left me excited to see how this is going to develop into Terma. I think wanting Scully to do more stuff is an evergreen problem with the conspiracies to date. It's the kind of thing where Scully is supporting Mulder more. We, we see her actually... It's interesting if we go from season one where if anybody in a position of power <laughs> said to Scully, you've got to tell us something, she folded immediately. Yeah. And now we've got her standing up to Congress. Yeah. I mean... It's also bizarre when they're sort of told, oh yeah, the, this whole event is to find out about the guy who's been, who died in Agent Skinner's apartment. Uh, and our first question is, where is Agent Mulder? Like, do you well, I guess in part it's because um, all three of them were called into Congress and Mulder's suspiciously absent. Yeah. But how far will Scully go to protect Mulder? That's the question. It's nice that she is getting there, though. She, <laughs> she's more on board with Mulder's madness even though we've previously questioned, it's unclear how far Scully can follow him into the abyss. Yeah. Well, I think it's presumably it's building off Talitha Kumi where, and more her- actually more Heronvolk, where she's fully accepted there is a conspiracy at work within the government. She might not believe the ends of it in the same way that Mordor does, but she's aware it's there. Mm. And that was and that's in her little speech she does at the start. A prepared statement in which she almost resigns as well over it. Yeah. Or it says, um, I... I'm best off not working if I can't do my job because of these people. Look, one of them's at the back of the room. He's just walked in. He's sitting there. Yeah, she was not quite at the point where when he said, are you actually resigning, where she'd put this mm. to paper. She won't, like Mulder, put her beliefs to the front like that. No. But she knows that something's in hand. She knows she's got to protect Mulder. Yes. But it's still annoying that, you know, it, why can't Scully be in the field and Mulder be stuck at home going, which I was where Scully was. She's seen exciting things. I know, Mulder. Why don't you go and analyse the sample this time and I'll run off with Krajic to Tunguska. <laughs> Basically because Scully wouldn't have done that bit. <laughs> it's always Mulder as well. It was Mulder who ran off to Hong Kong in yeah. Piper Maru as well. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, I think it corresponds back to the oft-observed problem with the X-Files is Mordor's allowed to see stuff to a point. Scully is not. At least she gradually gets to see more and more stuff, but she's never allowed to see the big thing. You often see pandered around that gif from the X-Files picture book as well, with, um, look, said Mulder, look up and see. Scully did not look up, Scully did not see, <laughs> is what pops into my head every time. It's uh, Scully did not see is a summary of every X-Files episode. And I think that's what we used to say a lot of that in our early days as well. Mm. So, yeah, unfortunately, not a lot we can do with that one. And Scully's not likely to run off into the field anytime soon. Paperclip, then, is still one of the odd ones out where she actually got to go to Conspiracy Place and see conspiracy things. She almost did in Apocrypha as well. It's just the cancer man stopped them before they managed to go through that last door. Yeah, I suppose they were both there together. And if, So it's the whole Mulder seeing the alien spaceship isn't a big thing, but Scully seeing it would be the interesting thing. Yeah, the closest Scully's got is seeing the lights in the sky, and that was right back in season one. Yeah, it's a shame she missed the one in Paperclip, really. Although, still not going to get into what the aliens were doing in that mine. Like, did you beam them down and have them run past her in the dark and then beam them back up again? What are you doing? You're the most diminutive ones as well, because yeah. they're only hip high. You're you're the small, okay, like, it's like the Urkans in Vader Zim. You're small, so very small. <laughs> God, can you imagine if the aliens were the Urkans? I'd love it. <laughs> I hope there's a fan fiction that's done that. Someone must have done it. Please let us know if there's an Invader Zim X-Files crossover, because I'm very curious how that works. I want um, Dib's little shadowy cabal to be the syndicate. Well, they're, now they're kind of more the Lung Gunman area, aren't they? Yeah, I guess he is, with um, Agent Mothman and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, they're, they're more the Lung Gunman kind of area. But yeah, I'd be very amused to see Mulder trying to deal with Urkins. And, there's, and given the multiple types of aliens, there's no reason why you can't throw the Urkins in there as well. Well, your topsy and gur could be fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's an extra layer. It's a zipper. Underneath it is a robot. Amy Dag. <laughs> yes, I've been wondering about that. Well, next week we have completion of this little storyline from Tunguska, which would be Terma. And I it's been so long I can't remember if this is gonna pay off or not be like most of the other conspiracy episodes of urgently clawing back all the revelations at the last second. No, it's been so long, I can't really remember where this one goes. So it's all exciting to rewatch it. Yep, that'll be good. And we have Paper Hearts. If you'd like to get hold of us, our email address is thingsagainstrange42 at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter and Tumblr at GetStrange42, on Mastodon at GetStrange42 at Universodon.com, and on Facebook you can find us by searching for Things Are Getting Strange and X-Files Rewatch Podcast. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash things are getting strange. Only one episode of the play of the Let's Play so far because audio issues with the second one. We might have to redo it, or I might be able to fix it. We'll have to see. Uh, I know. That means I have to find that bullet in that warehouse all over again. Oh. It'll be faster this time. You think? I think. It took me two hours. I know. So, as always, our Patreon has three tiers at increasing prices. If you fund us at any tier, you will have access to the Let's Play and anything we might do in the future. Novels, other video games, and comics are mostly the plan, aren't they? Yep, that's what we've got planned for after the Let's Play of the PlayStation game. Three. Our theme music is Envisioned by Kevin MacLeod. You can find that on Incompetech.com, licensed under the Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Thank you all for listening, and until next week, remember... Life is like a box of chocolates. chocolates.